You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. We're back with an all-new episode of Red Scare. <laughs> oh, God. Let's not get topical at all. I love it when we don't get topical. I'm just talking about that Succession Girls podcast. Anyway, hi. <laughs> I'm Iron Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. Wait, speaking of Europeans, have I ever done my one impression? No, what is it? Okay, get ready. It's almost as good as yours, if you know what I mean. Uh... So I don't know when I developed this. It wasn't too long ago. But my impression is Frenchman recognizes Billie Eilish. Are you ready? Yes. Are are you the bad guy? That's it. Louis Vertel. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, no, I'm not the bad guy. Like, the song's about a bad guy. <laughs> uh, you watching Minions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I get that's where I draw most of my comedic material. Anyway, speaking of minions, uh Aida is shooting <laughs> Minions 8. That's the one where they go to hell, right? It's like Friday the 13th. <laughs> uh Jason versus Minions is my favorite one. But, I think um, the minions are gonna take it. Yeah. Probably probably. Uh no, Aida is working again. She loves she loves being booked and busy, mm-hmm. as it were. Uh, and I'm unbooked. I'm yeah. You'll... I'm I'm perpetually I'm perpetually moving, but uh, I am not booked at the moment. No, I sit on this Zoom and wait for it to come back on every week. Just me at the computer. <laughs> uh, no, wait a minute. Are you still in LA? I am in LA for the literally two more days. Oh, okay. Because so. last week. We had what I'll call a cold front. I'm not a meteorologist. Oh, I love those days. I love those days. And people always make the jokes about, you know, what when, when I think people were sharing that meme of Adam Sandler walking around in shorts and then that big puffer. But, yeah. you know, those days remind me of when I would watch TV and you'd see people in jackets and scarves and hats in L.A. And I was like, this doesn't seem like Southern California, but right. it is. And also, it, it was windy. It was Winnie the Pooh in the blustery day. And I was a piglet cling, clinging to my um, leaf umbrella as I flew in the wind and had the worst allergic reaction ever. And I still believe I'm suffering from it now. So if you, if you, if you, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to speak through the Zyrtec. And if it sounds at all cloudy this week, I apologize, but I'm doing my best. That's fine. I'm suffering through an STD shot I didn't need. Oh, oh, wait, as in you went, you went in to get it and then you th- just preventatively and then it turns yeah. out. Didn't have it. Isn't that like the dorkiest feeling ever? You're like, oh, of, of course I have an STD. We all know the life I lead. And then you come out and it turns out you're clean as a daisy. Not a phrase, no. by the way, clean as a daisy. It's just like, <laughs> it's like, why, why is my skin itching? Oh, it's probably bounce. 
Oh, well, actually, speaking of skin itching, I did have a minor trauma this week. Do you know what I tried doing uh, for the first time last Saturday? Uh, I got a wax, which is to say everywhere, just because to prepare for summer. Who knows if this is something I could get into? Uh, Guys, I have news for you. I have news (laughs) for you. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with my complexion, but girl, it is the princess and the pea over here. Do not get a fucking wax if you are uh, Nicole Kidman slash Elle Fanning colored. (laughs) It has been fucking grim. Lewis, leaning to being leaning to being gay and like body hair positive. Is that what gay is now? Because once upon a time it used to be the opposite. Listen, I'm sure there is like a gay um Instagram influencer making some infographic now, you know. Uh <laughs> body body hair is revolutionary or something. I don't know. Right. No. Uh uh I- I'm on the Mattel track, sorry. Uh, when, when you're when you're Polish, hair on your skin just it's like it's like thin and dark, and I have really light pink skin. I just don't want that Neapolitan balance. Okay, well, love this journey for you. Can't Thank wait you. to see. Can't uh, wait to see you once bikini season hit. <laughs> <laughs> Back walking Carnaby Row in my uh, scandalous mini skirt. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, this is a fun episode this week. We are going to be joined by. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Whom, by the way, you ever just think about how long we have known who Joseph Gordon-Levitt is? I mean, decades and decades. I was re-watching episodes of Third Rock from the Sun last night, which we'll get into. Well, you'd think I would be doing that as the resident Jane Curtin stan of the, of the show. So I feel guilty that you're ahead of me on this front. Yeah, before Joseph joins us, we're going to do a little deep dive into his, you know, his oeuvre as uh, your French man would say. Yes. Lewis and I watched uh, a couple of Joseph Gordon-Levitt films that we surprisingly have not seen uh, because when I looked at his IMDb, I was like, I have seen literally all of these. I've even seen Premium Rush. Oh, yeah. Premium Rush was good. Wasn't Premium it? Rush is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I remember it well. But it's just not a film that I feel like anyone thinks about that much anymore right 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 by the way i just want to say this is one of the dorkiest decisions we've ever made on this podcast like we're so excited about a guest we're like let's look into his hidden (laughs) gems and then talk about them while he's not here and then once he's here bring them up to him uh yeah so we're gonna do that uh and then of course we'll talk to him about his new showtime series super pumped based on uber the battle for uber as mm-hmm. it were. Uh, my battle for Uber is uh, currently <laughs> trying to get any Uber in Los Angeles. Oh, God. By the way, it keeps coming in waves for me. Like, there are times it's super easy, and then other times it's utterly impossible. There's, like, there's no in-between. Or times where it's $60 to go 10 blocks. Right. Always my favorite. Yeah, 10 blocks, I would naturally walk in New York, but you can't do that in L.A. No. In L.A., you're like, well, it's a little bit of a hill, so I can't. <laughs> Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the SAG Awards this week and dispel people's notions that Jessica Chastain is getting an Oscar. It's not happening. I I have to say, yeah, we'll get into... Every time someone watches somebody win an award on an award show, they're like, well, that's it. The Oscar's all tied up. I'm like, do you have a fucking goldfish brain? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, so we will be back with more Keep It. Hey. 
since our guest today has a filmography a mile long, we knew there must have been at least a movie or two that we missed. So we're doing Blind Spots again, Joseph Gordon-Levitt edition. Which I find is kind of us. No, this is like our Kennedy Center Honors, basically. Um, we'll be performing a musical tribute. It's always so funny at the Kennedy Center Honors when they honor an actor, because what are people supposed to do but stand on stage and be like, you know what you were really good in? Whatever, Patton, or whatever the movie comes up. <laughs> um, I love when we do things like this, because then I force Lewis to watch a comic book movie. No, this is, uh, uh, you ever seen, speaking of Jessica Chastain, Zero Dark Thirty? This is a torture moment for me. And... <laughs> We'll see if I survive it. All right. So you watched The Dark Knight Rises for the first time. Correct. And let me just tell you, my problem started right off the bat, which is to say, we're calling him The Dark Knight, like he's a character in medieval literature. Guys, it's Batman. I'm sorry. Just, just, can you just say Batman Rises? That makes more sense to me. And then, do you know why I think they don't call him Batman in the title? Because Batman, as a word, sounds a little bit like a read. Like, oh, here comes the Batman into the room. Oh, he's flying. You know, it's just, it just doesn't feel very complimentary to me. So they had to dress it up and call him the Dark Knight. Um, so I sat down to watch this movie. And also, of course, I haven't seen the Dark Knight since the Heath Ledger one came out in theaters. That's something I actually went to the theater to see. I remember that well. But mm -hmm. I have to tell you, this is probably a top four Anne Hathaway performance. Because at least... They give her something amazing to do every time she is on screen. There's no filler for her character in this. And I didn't know it was going to be that good. It's a very companion piece to her work in Ocean's 8, where she's also, you know, embezzling and winking and darting out of rooms. So I was very pleased by that, actually. I love going to parties with wealthy people and just whispering in their ears, batting down the hatches. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she looks. No, she looks fantastic. Also, she by actually the way, is a good cat woman. She's a good cat woman. I think this goes to your theory that you've posited on the show before that um, Anne Hathaway's been in a lot of bad movies, but she's never given a bad performance. No, she's always very commanding. And also, I just want to say this movie officially marks the period in history, which I believe is over now, where we would put Marion Cotillard in huge blockbusters. I think it ended with Allied. But remember when we would do this and then Inception and uh, wasn't she in that movie with um, Johnny Depp where they're like, is it called Public Enemies? I forget what the name of that movie was. Oh, she is in Public Enemies. And I think maybe I've talked about this on the podcast. Um, Chicago history that was filming when you and I were in school. Wasn't oh, it? yes. In college still. And um, I remember... Um, I remember I hooked up with this person at um, that I met at like um, Roscoe's or something, uh, local Chicago gay bar. Yes. And still there, when, still great. When, when we got to his street, um, it was shut down because they were shooting public enemies. Um, so like in the morning when I woke up, they were still like shooting this like shootout scene between Johnny Depp and other mobsters. And they also shot in the suburbs because I want to say part of it is shot in Joliet, which is near where I grew up. So they were everywhere. The idea that Marion Cotillard might have been near where I grew up just makes no sense. And her life obviously has taken a wrong turn. Sorry. I'm gonna uh, this uh, oh. Also interesting in Public Enemies and The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Marion Cotillard plays a um, woman of color. 
Oh, and good. She well, she, uh, she obviously has range and nerve. <laughs> she is definitely white as hell. Okay? She's not even a white woman of color like my girl Angelina Jolie. Right, right. No, this is a French woman. Edith Piaf, noted white woman, frankly. Uh, anyway, so... Watching this movie, I was thrilled at the amount of action Anne Hathaway got to do. But I, and I love a lot of the movie. I, it's not as super dark as I thought it would be. I, I remember it like being in the Christopher Nolan world of everything is, you know, everything seems like a really dim Starbucks. Everything seems like, you know, everything's dark brown and you can't see. Or like the way an Abercrombie and Fitch used to be where you're like, are those polos over there? I don't know what's happening. Um but then, of course, it turns it turns into a normal good guys versus bad guys scenario. And I have to say, does Batman ever look any lamer than when he is in a fist fight? Girl, can't you settle this some <laughs> other way? You, you look like what? a fool. That outfit w- is not built for boxing. <laughs> I would posit that he only looks weird in fist fights when he's in these Nolan films. I think that, like, I think that the camp of you know, Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher helps you, you know, see the fist fights as like sort of fun and entertaining. Uh, but when they, but when they put him in this clunky sort of like, you know, like militarized suit in all the Nolan films, it looks like he's like just, you know, wading through water while fighting. Yeah. Right. And also I think it's just, it's, it's also clunky because these movies place Batman in the middle of a tragic epic poem whereas in the original Batman movies as you said it's not just campy it's you know everybody's got a sassy one-liner every second so it's really anything goes Mm -hmm. well so what did you think of Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the film oh right the reason we did this Um, (laughs) well by the way I enjoyed him he's sort of in he's not a detective in this movie but he's in detective mode and I liked him similarly in the movie Brick which was one of those... Oh, uh, Brick is fucking amazing. I mean... Yeah, Neo-noir. Mm-hmm. My introduction to Ryan Johnson. Right, yes. And then, of course, he did uh, Looper with Ryan Johnson. Yeah, and you know, remember his uncredited um, voice cameo in Knives Out that Ryan told us about. Oh, um, he yes. Was on the show. Oh, that's right. We were um, rad Entertainment Weekly reporters for a minute there, actually discovering <laughs> something. <laughs> oh, side note on that. I love a detour. Uh, I finally started working on my book, which is set in, which is a lot of essays about the 90s. And I was mm. Googling, um, like, old SNL 90s cast members. And I really wanted to read this article of yours, which no longer exists. M- of uh, mine? Yes, because uh, Movie Line no longer exists. Oh, my! I was going to bring up Movie Line in another context. We'll talk about that soon. Okay. <laughs> and it says, um, oh, God, it was is like, it? it's Chris Farley, the new Kevin James. Oh, sorry, is Kevin, we, all right, is Kevin James the new Chris Farley was the name of the article. And it was like, Louis Vertel discusses. And I clicked on the link in like the Wayback Machine and the article did not appear. That movie line doesn't even appear in the Wayback Machine. Should tell you how scrubbed from the internet half of my career is. <laughs> that is utterly impressive that it wouldn't even be in the thing that's there to store deleted internet things. Um, uh well, by the way, let's talk about SEO for a moment. If you see that headline, you're immediately filled with rage, right? So you click on it and immediately start flaming the author and doxing him and stuff. That was of how course. we made money once upon a time. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but I used to do a series of articles about is blank the new blank. I think the one I started with was 
is Leslie Mann, the new Madeline Kahn, which there are some parallels in some comic delivery. It wasn't totally ham-fisted, but uh, not true. I just want to say that Guy Branham, while you were not here, one time on this podcast said that Channing Tatum was the new Madeline Kahn. I think we need to get him him into jail. We have to get him into jail. I did listen to that episode, and you know what? I agree. In what way? In her operatic, like... I'm falling apart. Nothing's going right for me. Help me. Her franticness. He does that sort of franticness in like 21 Jump Street. I think that if you made like a Clue reboot, um, he would come out being the most memorable comic actor in it. Mm, Okay. Well, I mean, I want to see who the other actors are. Uh, Are they they new (laughs) actors? Because I just can't see it. Anyway, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in The Dark Knight Rises, what's actually most disappointing about his appearance in the film to me was that they were clearly setting him up as Nightwing, uh, which is, you know, like the Dick Grayson, Robin in the Batman comics, you know, like clearly setting him off for some sort of um, spinoff series, which for some reason or another never happened. Uh, And I like would have really enjoyed Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a sort of like, superhero lead role you sort of get that in netflix's project power which is really fun the movie he did with jamie fox and dominic fishback oh right right uh no he gives a, a capable you you believe him as a uh, uh purpose-driven adult in this film he just has a, a good serious face you know he kind of reminds me of actors of like the, the 40s and 50s, someone like Gary Cooper or uh, Gregory Peck, somebody who's there to furrow a brow, but it doesn't seem camp. So that is what I felt about him when I got into my blind spot, which was the film Snowden. Which is, by the way, a crazy film to pick for this project, but I'm excited about it because it has not that much of a legacy, but it was a moment at the time, like, oh, he's playing Edward Snowden, this new celebrity. Right. We don't even talk about Edward Snowden anymore, except I guess we're talking about him recently because he is um, in hiding in Moscow. Right. And I think he pops off with takes where we're like, oops, like we we thought you were radder than this at one point. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, a lot of our a, a lot of our people who do um espionage related things end up not being cool you know once you um ask them to make pithy jokes online right like that's Mm. that's that's you know that that wasn't your purpose in life to be to be a stand-up comedian (laughs) edward snowden not meant to be bruce Valange. that's what we discovered on this podcast uh but watching this film uh and i actually watched a few episodes of third rock from the sun before I watched the film, just to get into how we were sort of introduced to Joseph Gordon-Levitt as an actor. Uh, And he has that 40s quality that you mentioned. You know, he's he's very stoic in Snowden, uh, but also so good at being um, awkwardly funny um, Mm. and making Snowden sort of like a really making him an interesting character, even though he's sort of a person that's kind of off-putting in the sense yeah. that his 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 whole um idea of being is you know i love this country uh and you know i want to help this country be the best that it can be and then he works for the bush administration and then the obama administration and he's like oh the country spies on people and maybe america's not that great and i need to be a whistleblower and it's like how 
how sweet of you that you never realized any of that before you joined the military. <laughs> you finally looked up the Wikipedia for this country. I see. Yeah. By the way, uh, I have to say, do you know what I recently watched? This talk about a detour. Speaking of Third Rock from the Sun, so Kirsten Johnston gives a legendary supporting performance on Third Rock from the Sun. Her other iconic moment is, of course, on Sex and the City when she falls out the window in the sixth season and Carrie and the Russians see her and she goes splat in the episode splat. It always goes back to Russians. Yes, yes. Kristen Johnston, I also saw online, this must be, I'll say, 20 years old. She is the Rosalind Russell role in The Women on stage. I think PBS Mm. filmed it. So she gets to be kind of... um, you know, saying darling all the time and sitting with a bunch of women at a table and playing cards and stuff. She is fabulous. I was laughing my ass off at this performance. I'm so glad I have another, like, well of funny material to uh, mine for uh, Kristen Johnston material because obviously Third Rock from the Sun was sort of her defining moment for decades and decades. So I really recommend that if you're looking for more outsized laughs from a born stage performer. Well, I mean, this is very this is very Ira um material. Um, but she's also great in mom. Wait, mom. Oh wait, the TV show? The CBS show. Yeah. Oh, she's I've never on seen it. her on that. She's on it in a recurring role and also French Stewart does. French Stewart is as well. If you're wondering oh where God. he's been. Wow. Which okay, if we're gonna go the entire third rock route, have you seen Love is Strange with John Lithgow? No. Where his husband is Alfred Molina and they're a gay couple and uh, they're in financial dire straits and Cheyenne Jackson and Marissa Tomei are in it too. So fucking good. Love John Lithgow. Okay. Uh, no, John, John Lithgow has always been um, sort of an iconic performer to me from third rock to when he played, when he played evil in a later season of Dexter and was like the best part of the season. I love him playing evil because it just proves I mean, the actual versatility of that man, because he's he's like so approachable in a Mr. Rogers like way in a most of his work. And then for him to have that reservoir of scary is so fabulous, too. All right. One one more. Also, in, also in blowout. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but to get back to Joseph in third rock one of the episodes i watched is where he takes over the school newspaper and so he sort of shifts into this like well speaking of rosalind russell you know he sort of shifts into this (laughs) like uh his girl friday character you know he's like speaking very like 40s you know he's like oh uh, fuck yeah yeah he's like we gotta get we gotta get to the bottom of the corruption in this school uh (laughs) and he's just playing a character like that so hilariously for someone who's like a teenager Right. I, I mean, he's so young in that role. Is this when he's dating the Larissa Olenek character or not? It is. It is. Oh, my. And honestly, the, the, the hilarious point, the hilarious part of the episode is, uh, I mean, it's basically sexual harassment, but uh, his ex-girlfriend um, works on the newspaper uh, and, you know, in his warped alien brain, he's convinced that he broke up with the ex-girlfriend and he's like, um, she can't get over it. Uh, and when she writes a bad review of Larissa Olenek, um's character in uh, My Fair Lady, uh, oh my god, he's like he's like you're fired. Your journalistic ethics have gone out the window. Oh my god, Larissa Olenek, what a strange journey! Because she was the the star of The Secret World of Alex Mack. She had this yes. recurring role on Third Rock from the Sun. We put her in Ten Things I Hate About You. Where where they're both it, she, in it, correct? 
she gave maybe the seventh best performance. And then she had that recurring role on Mad Men. And then that's it. Well, you know, as resident CBS expert, uh, she had a <laughs> recurring role on Hawaii Five O for a minute. So, oh, okay. You know, so, so she had to deal with Scott Kahn, which I hope that went well. Yeah, um, and she was in Pretty Little Liars, which God, talk about a show that a certain subset was fucking obsessed with now, and now I never hear about that show anymore. Though, in, if you ever, I feel like an acting exercise could just be saying the words Troy and Belisario over and over again. <laughs> uh, honestly, I feel like we're due for a Alex Mack reboot, a gritty Alex Mack reboot. Oh, wow. Like, well, first of all, she's, she has to be disfigured by the toxic waste. <laughs> the GC-161 has to have ruined her fucking life. She has to be coming from a place of rage and not just, I'm trying to get through high school. Yeah, yeah. At this at this point, um, Dale Atron, if she's still chasing after Alex Mack, come on. Uh, no, there's got to be other issues here. And I was going to say Cocoa Beach, but that's not where they live. That's where they live in Shelby Woo. Uh, they're in Florida. I'm positive about that. But um, no, Danielle Atron, the woman chasing down Alex Mack, like she did anything wrong after getting uh, barrels of chemicals spilled on her. But uh, LOL, <laughs> this, this woman would stand at a, at a boardroom table and snicker at nothing while her two idiot henchmen would run around trying to get Alex Mack. Actually, the funniest part of Alex Mack is that her sister Annie was like, like assigned herself the scientist role. And my sister Annie thinks I'm a science project. I love that theme song. My best oh, friend Ray thinks it's cool. My sister <laughs> Annie thinks I'm a science project. <laughs> and then, but then Annie would be like, all right, here, let me get out my volcano making kit to solve what's wrong with you. It's like, Annie, you're dumb. <laughs> uh, I would also go for a Shelby Woo reboot, you know? Always. No, that I was obsessed with. In fact, I wish more, I'll say, like, kids who are my age, like, if you're born in the mid-80s, I was basically only obsessed with mysteries growing up. It was always Encyclopedia Brown. It was always the movie Clue and then the kids' book series Clue, where you could, like, solve who did the crimes by figuring out all the clues. And then when Shelby Wu appeared, I'm like, oh, finally, I'm being spoken for. So, like, there's a kid's show about a kid detective. Anyway. If anybody else lived that life, speak out. Speak now. I never knew that there were clue books. I read like the boxcar children books, though. They were always solving mysteries. Those yeah. Homeless also, kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and living in a boxcar. Sorry. It's just oh, not. Wait, my sorry. Speed. Actually, not even. Well, home, left as orphans and then daddy warbucked by this rich man, but they, I guess, still have PTSD and need to live in a boxcar that's behind the mansion um, that they should be living in. That book is creepy. Yeah, I'm not loving it. You keep describing it, and I'm like, their journey isn't fun. It's not a literary one I want to be on. Oh, uh, also, another another book like this, The Westinghouse, of course, or The Westing yeah. Game, The Westing Game. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was a very great conversation about the roles of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we um, suck. Know, Anyway, he's good at Snowden, you know? Um, yeah. And Oliver Stone does his Oliver Stone thing. So You're a stan of his, right? I am not I am not an Oliver Stone stan, per se. Uh, I feel like the um, over-the-top um, director that I stan more is probably like a Brian De Palma. Oh, I sure. Think, I think that... Oliver Stone has made some good films, but he's also 
made some abysmal films. Like well, also, w. Brian De Palma is one of the, Yes, of course. Brian De Palma is one of those people like David Cronenberg where you watch it and not only are you absorbed by the craziness of what's happening, but you do at some point have to ask yourself, what the fuck is wrong with this man? How, like, how did you become this person? Like, it's a, it becomes a psychological profile of the director himself. Hitchcock's a little like that sometimes. Also, Snowden was the last movie that Oliver Stone directed. That's what I was going to ask you. I was almost sure it was because you never hear his name anymore. Yeah, I thought it was the movie Savages, which for some reason I do love. But that came four years before um, that Taylor Kitsch, Blake Lively film. Taylor Kitsch, woof, you really zapped me back to being 22. All right. <laughs> uh, all right. When we're back, um, we talked to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand... That was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today has been acting basically since he's been 10. And in his decades in the industry since, he's done it all. A writer, director, and producer with two Golden Globe nominations, two Emmys, and a SAG Award. He's currently playing Uber CEO Travis Kalanick on Showtime Super Pumped. Please welcome Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Thanks so much. Thank you for being here. I want I want you to know that we just did a nerdy deep dive in this episode um, by hitting two of our blind spots in movies of yours we hadn't seen. Okay, because uh, we basically I feel like I've basically seen every film that you've been in. I I really had. I had to dig hard, but then the, <laughs> I the one I came up with was what it is. I had never seen The Dark Knight Rises because I'm <laughs> constitutionally opposed to movies like that existing. Okay, but but movies like what exactly? He doesn't he, like. He, he's not a superhero movie person. Okay, picture, fair enough. Yeah. Again, I have a Sandy Dennis poster behind me. Can you picture me really sitting with the Batman? Can you picture me like watching him? Probably not, right? I mean, 
Yeah, I, I I hear you. Sure, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue that one. All right, go ahead. But you were you were uh, excellent at it. And my, Thanks. my but the the qu- question that came to mind for me was, you've been in these just gigantic movies, and then also extremely small movies that like really stick with me, like Mysterious Skin. And I was like, do you have a favorite size of movie to make? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't have a favorite. I feel like I'd be disappointed if I didn't get the variety and feel lucky that I've been fortunate enough to get to do a wide variety of things. I like to watch a wide variety of things. I like to listen and read a wide variety of things. I'm not one of those people that like has a a, a genre or a, I don't know, a lane that I mm-hmm. stick in. Uh, the variety is a big part of what keeps it interesting for me. Okay. So mine was Snowden. Uh-huh. Um, and what I loved about that was, um, just, I feel like the range you have in, um, going from like this very serious, um, you know, sort of intense character to like more comedic things. Like, um, I know actually one of my favorite performances of yours is in Don John. Oh, thanks, man. But I feel like you always play sort of like obsessive characters and whether it's comedic or whether it's serious the character like has this like intense sort of like obsession i even rewatched a third rock from the sun episode where you (laughs) were a newspaper editor in it and like you even have the intensity there too the feverishness was there i'm very flattered you guys thank you do you Uh, find yourself like an an obsessive person with your interests unquestionably (laughs) yeah i I mean but that's what isn't that the fun of it i mean if you're not going to care deeply then what's the point of any of it right it's i don't know i it but it's actually funny it reminds me a little bit of um you just brought up mysterious skin and that movie that character is particularly someone who's sort of let's say fair about a lot and i remember one one of the things I remember about that creative process was diving real deep into the novel. It's based on a novel by Scott Heim. I went to Kansas where the story is set. I traveled there with the novelist. He he took me to meet his family and, and to all these childhood places where his memories were, where the story is based on. And, and, uh, and I came to work the first day before shooting and started talking to Greg Araki, the writer-director, about all these things that I thought and all these notes I had made about the novel, et cetera. And he was very respectful and receptive and and listened to everything I had to say and then was like, yeah, I don't I don't think you should think about it all that much. <laughs> and, and you know what? He was a hundred percent right. Is that that is that character. That character is not an uh he's not someone who overthinks things. And uh and that was actually a real challenge to kind of let go of that obsessive uh, pattern that you're pointing out. And also that character was in basically denial about how traumatized he was. So that fits in with that too. That's exactly right. I will literally always remember that film because I think it is, it came out spring of 2005 and I think it's maybe the first like queer film I watched after coming out. I was going to say, you, you must hear that all the time. You must hear that all the time. Because it's, it, it's a specific niche from that time anyway, where like you'd get a new queer movie once every two years that you ended up seeing if you were somebody, somebody like me or Ira. Right. So 
do, do gay people just rush up to you and you're like, oh, mysterious skin. Here are the 25 ways that changed my life. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely hear from from people in the queer community about that movie for sure. Um, and that's really meaningful to me. And um, but it, it also just it's one of those movies that seems to transcend just film, you know, film lovers, people who are down to watch something that's challenging, that's that's going to make you feel strong feelings regardless of the subject matter. I think it's, it's actually, um, I remember someone once saying to me, they, they hadn't seen the movie and I was trying to describe it to them and they're like, but it's, um, it's about being gay. Right. And I was like, well, no, actually, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that's really what the movie's about. Um, and, uh, but you know, when you, when you put something in a genre, it's easy to reduce it. Maybe that's why I don't like genres. Maybe that's why I like to keep it eclectic. <laughs> um, so you are in Super Pumped, you know, the the battle for Uber. Uh, mm-hmm. And as I was joking to Lewis before this, my current battle with Uber is you can never get one in L.A. <laughs> Same, yeah. right, yeah. Um, we're, we're all in this together. Uber is uh, in a very different place than it was <laughs> back when this show takes place. Uh, I just remember, I just love the first scene where you were putting um, Kyle Chandler into an Uber uh, because it reminds mm-hmm. me that the initial Uber experience was glamour. Mm-hmm. That was their brand. Yeah. It felt mm. like when you got into it, um, it was like, oh, this is like a nice, classy thing I'm getting into. And now someone will pick you up in their Volvo and maybe kill you on the 405. <laughs> um, but preparing to play. Travis, uh, you know, you described even in Mysterious Skin back then, you were like, I'm like intensely making notes for this character, you know, like, how do you prepare for playing like Edward Snowden? Like, how do you prepare playing a character who exists in the real world? And we already sort of have ideas about, although I guess Travis isn't a person that the general public knows that much. Yeah, I had never heard his name i don't think i didn't really know him personally of course i knew uber but it was fascinating to get to know who who was the human being uh, and the human beings plural uh, behind this incredible success um and you know so there's there's a few sides to it one the the show's based on a book the book was written by a new york times journalist who sourced everything very rigorously adhering to the New York Times standard of journalism where everything in there comes from a direct source and then is confirmed by a secondary source. Um, So that means everything in the book, someone who was there saw it happen and told Mike Isaac, the journalist, about it. And so all of the kind of plot points and the, the what of what you see in the show comes from that book. But for me, I, I was interested in, in more beyond just what happened. I wanted to know how it felt, you know, because I'm, I'm an actor. I'm not a journalist. I want to portray a whole human being, not just, you know, uh, relay the events that occurred. Um, so I talked to a whole bunch of people that were there, uh, a whole bunch of people that worked closely with Travis and was just asking them, okay, so yeah, beyond all this stuff, like, what's he like? Who is he? What's it like to have a conversation with him? What's it like to sit in a room with him and have a meeting? How does he behave? How does he feel? And just heard from a a wide variety of people and, uh, and learned a lot that I probably wouldn't have learned had I just stuck to 
the book and and the press. Um, and and in fact, a lot of positive things. You know, you you largely hear, uh, you largely hear a, a negativity around him nowadays because I think he did make some really questionable decisions, and Uber under him did have some real negative impacts on a lot of people's lives, and that's really important, I think, to hold him accountable for that. Um, but what you don't hear as much is from the people that I heard from who were like, oh man, he was so inspiring. He had so much energy. He was so incredibly smart. You couldn't help but get on his side and want to help him on this crazy, ambitious mission of his. And uh, so I was, I was really trying to kind of hit all, all of the above. And it makes sense that somebody like that would have charisma, but at the same time to play that and also his unseemly qualities, that just seems really hard. Did you find that easy to balance you know i think we all have a certain beast inside of us where you know the the thing where you're like i'm just gonna take what i want and fuck everybody else we all have that inside of us. this basic animal instincts we're all animals right and that's how travis leaned into his work life and uh and so in a way there's something very easy about just diving into that side of myself and it's fun and gratifying and cathartic because it's not a side of yourself you always get to really just let loose um and i think that's that's why (laughs) it was a lot of fun for me to to play and why it's fun to watch i want to ask you about working with um in super pumped one of the four actresses on my Mount Rushmore, uh, Uma Thurman. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Wait, who, who are the, who is the Mount Rushmore? Just diversion. Angela Bassett. Okay. Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer. Great. And, and Uma for sure. And Uma. Um, yeah. is she an intense woman in person? She's really easy to be around. Um, but she's a really intense and dedicated artist. Um, she nailed Ariana Huffington, just nailed the accent. I mean, and I mean it in a good way, not not in any sort of negative way. But just she she showed a ton of I think respect and interest in who the woman was, and learned tons about her, and just drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled to get that voice down. And it's just, it's so good. She's not in the first episode. So if you watch the first episode, you haven't seen her yet. But uh, Uma's performance is honestly my favorite part of the whole show. I could watch an entire series of Uma Thurman playing Ariana Huffington. And for sure, she's she holds a special place in my psyche, I think, just like she does for you. I mean, I was, so when Pulp Fiction came out, uh, I think I was 13 or something mm-hmm. like that. And that movie just kind of changed everything about how I felt, not only about movies, about about art, about creativity, about myself, about acting, which I, you know, I'd already been acting for years and I cared a lot about it. And um, that movie was such a kind of blow the roof off of everything moment, you know, it was through, I think, my like exposure to Pulp Fiction, then Reservoir Dogs, and then the Coen brothers. And then that was like, oh, now, oh, there's art, there's there's Scorsese and Coppola from the seventies and like, Oh wait, but they were watching these European filmmakers from the sixties. And like, but it, in, in a way it started with Pulp Fiction 
And I think that's that's true for a lot of people, kind of bringing that artistic flair to um, uh, and doing it so well that it that it becomes mainstream and, and it's playing at the mall where a suburban kid like me would see it. And uh, and so Uma is just this. I mean, Mount Rushmore, I love your Mount Rushmore image. Like she's kind of her her presence is is this kind of has this halo in in my mind and so acting opposite her was just just euphoria I, I i was just constantly just thrilled being just sinking into her her face and her everything obviously you've acted for hundreds of decades now you're 700 years old but because you have all this experience in a kevin bacon like way where since the beginning you've worked also with like luminaries since the beginning of your career are there any particular uh co-workers you've had whose voice still kind of lingers in your head like you know as sort of inspirational people who've who've kind of kept you acting kept you interested in acting for years and years well let's see who comes to mind i mean of course there's so many uh one of my most memorable experiences as, as a, you mentioned, you know, uh, I've been doing this for so long. And when I was 10, actually the first feature film I got to act in, I'd been, you know, doing little parts in TV shows and commercials and stuff. But uh, when I was 10, I got to be in my first movie and it was a river runs through it, which was directed by Robert Redford. And at the time I didn't really know Robert Redford was, I was 10. Um, my, but my mom kind of educated me and, and this is the first time I was being directed by an actor. So Ooh. someone who mm. really understood where I was coming from. And, um, well, one anecdote I'd like to tell about him, which I think is worth repeating, is uh, there was this one scene we were doing where I had to walk into a room and, and hit my mark and then have this scene with Tom Selleck, who's playing my dad. And, uh, you know, the cinematography in A River Runs Through it was very composed and very beautiful. In fact, I think the the cinematographer won the Oscar that year. And and so when you're when you're acting in a scene, you have to they call it hit your mark. I mean, stand on this certain piece of tape because that's exactly where the camera is pointing and that's where all the lights are pointing and they've set it up in just such a way that it looks beautiful. So if you are you're if you're a little bit off the mark, that fucks up all the cinematography. And it's a bit of a, it's a skill that you have to learn to, to walk all the way somewhere, not look down. You can't look at the tape and, and still hit exactly where you need to stand. And so after a few takes, I had, I had fucked it up a couple times. I'd walked into the room and not stood quite on the mark and the cinematographer very nicely, but you know, pretty insistently was, you know, saying like, Hey, you, you have to, you have to stand there or else it doesn't work. And, um, of course I got really nervous, like, oh God. Okay. So then we're about to do another take. And all I'm thinking about is I have to stand on that mark. I have to stand on that mark. I have to hit the mark. And Mr. Redford came up to me and he could tell, I think that I was distracted and it's not good for an actor to be thinking about hitting a mark. The actor should be thinking about the story and what the character's feeling and needs to be in it. And, uh, and he leaned down to me and he just whispered, he goes, I never hit my marks. <laughs> and only a director who's acting could tell me that, you know? And um, so just so much empathy and, and so much wherewithal. And I got to say, like, respect 
for a 10-year-old. Not everybody uh, treats kids with the respect that I think they deserve. You know, kids are Mm -hmm. people too. (laughs) And um, I just love that he said that. And eventually I did hit the mark, but I also managed to stay focused. And um, I, I admire him bob he goes by i i don't want to sound douchey by like calling him oh bob, I, I, call, is... I, I call him bob all the time okay good. Oh, when, when yeah, we yeah. text he's, he's a bob in my thought that's how we go that's that's what everyone calls him and um i just look up to him so much and not to mention you know this is the guy that started sundance which oh, almost yeah. single-handedly is responsible for independent cinema in the united states you guys would never have seen mysterious skin if it weren't for sundance Mm-hmm. Also, for somebody whose like secondary occupation is directing, he really has directed two of my favorite movies and performances within those movies, which are uh, not just that movie, but uh, Ordinary People and Quiz Show, and quiz which show. are so yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ray Fiennes and Quiz Show. Ah, oh, my hands in the <laughs> air. I'm at <laughs> church. For, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, for people listening, also, uh, Philippe Rousselot is the cinematographer. Uh, nice. From River Road Stewart, who also cinem- cinematographized uh, Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> So oh, uh, um, absolutely. There you go. I guess final question. Uh you also worked with um another one of my favorite directors who's been on this show, um, Ryan Johnson, uh, mm. who I've like been obsessed with since Brick. Uh mm. and he knows that. I it's why he has his restraining order against me. Um <laughs> but um what's it like working with him? And obviously you have um a relationship outside of work, you know, because you did a cameo, a little uncredited cameo in Knives Out, uh, which was the film I wouldn't stop talking about in 2019. <laughs> yeah, I've technically been in all of his movies. <laughs> we, yeah. we, keep, we keep the streak alive. <laughs> You're the John Ratzenberger of yeah. uh, Ryan Johnson. Yes. I don't know that reference. Who's John oh, Ratzenberger? He, he's the guy that used to be on Cheers, and then he's in all the Pixar movies. Oh, I didn't know this at all, and I'm a big oh, Pixar God. fan. Okay. P- pay attention. Tune in. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Ryan, yeah, what can I say about he's he's one of my dearest friends and favorite people. Um when we made break together, uh he I think understood that I was interested in the filmmaking process as a whole. And so he invited me into it. And I remember when he said to me, it's like I you know, we have a whole crew here and everybody's crucial, but this is like you, me, and Steve, we really have to leave it, lead it. And uh, Steve is his cinematographer. That's that he's been best friends with since film school, and that has shot all of his movies. Um, and he really considered me a collaborator in a way that I don't think I'd ever quite experienced before. And that just makes you feel so good and so inspired to do your best. And I think he. He inspires everybody he works with in this way because he's so not ego-driven. He's so not about, this is mine and I'm the artiste and the auteur and blah, blah, blah. He's he's all about just like, hey, let's all figure out whatever it takes to make this the best thing it can be. I'll take an idea from anywhere. I respect everybody. It's really not how everybody is. <laughs> not all directors are that way. And like he he once sat with me remember sitting in his apartment for hours and we went through the script of Brick and he told me what he was planning to do with the camera for every moment of that movie. 
they had they had planned it out and he went through the whole plan with me there was no like well you know we'll shoot a master and then some coverage and we'll see what happens in the edit room that that's that's not really how he makes movies and that's why one of the one of the many reasons why they're so great um but he didn't have to sit there and do that an actor doesn't technically need to know what the camera's doing in every moment of the movie but it accomplished two things. One, I think it can help if if the actor knows what the camera's doing. So you can play to the camera in in a, a more sensitive way if that's how you like to do it. Um, but also, like I said, it just made me feel so invested and and included that I I, I just gave everything to that performance and. Um, I, I I could go on and on and on about Ryan. I, your love for him is well merited. Well, thank you, Joseph. It was nice to have you here. Uh, thank you. Or Joe, as I'm going to call you now. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Joey, whatever you like. Giuseppe. Oh, my God. Yeah, you used to be Joey Gordon-Levitt. I remember sure. when you were, I think you were on Celebrity Jeopardy once, and your name was Joey <laughs> on the lectern. I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> when I wrote my name, that's what I wrote. It's, you, yeah. know, you, you write it down there. That's funny. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst was was another contestant on that episode yes. of Celebrity Jeopardy. Teen Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh Lord. I mean, we we you know, you like we said, you've had so long of a career, you know, like you'll have to you you need to come back for us to even get into like ten things I hate about you and your whole teen career. <laughs> I look so. forward to it. <laughs> Great talking to both of you. You too. All right, cheers. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Okay, so the SAG Awards were Sunday, which is probably news to most of you because you were either watching the euphoria finale or you were watching the real housewives of salt lake city reunion or you know you were having your sunday night wind down with 60 minutes like elaine Bennis. <laughs> <laughs> but i had to tune in and watch how um my votes for my union unfolded right no this was critical union behavior us watching Jessica Chastain win awards. Yeah, so let's get into that. Jessica Chastain won for um, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, um, which I still have not seen. I have seen it. Let me tell you this. I mean, it is down the line Wikipedia the movie, as in here's the beginning of Tammy Faye's life. Here she meets Jim Baker. They have a, a, a salad days that go very well. Up, oh, he's maybe corrupt. Up, things are looking bad for Tammy. Up, she has a, she has a slightly redemptive moment at the end, like right down the line. It's like you're reading a biographical story of Tammy Faye. Um, I have to say though, I'm not surprised she won for this one. It's a, I think it's a really good performance and also a really um, accurate performance. And it's ideal for Oscar voting because it's that thing of she has a very iconic look. So if you achieve that look, you're already in everybody's thrall there everybody's excited about it then if you can capture the character people 
I think it becomes very hard to vote against you. Like you're doing the the work of being this person. And mm-hmm. then there's the voice, which is great. We already knew she could do that voice because she's been in movies like The Help before. And, and now she's going to play Tammy Wynette in an upcoming biopic. So she's going to continue on this streak. But something annoys me about this movie, which is a big part of the emotional crux of it or getting us on uh, Tammy Faye's side is she has a very sympathetic moment with uh, a fan on air who has AIDS. And so her whole, you know, it's like she's this religious woman, but she's also sympathetic to the LGBT movement. I'm not saying that's not nothing. It's just not interesting enough for me to hinge a movie on. I don't know. Maybe 20 years ago, that would have been considered really landmark. Now I'm like, are we giving this woman too much credit? I don't know. I have not seen it, uh, but I would have been fine if she'd won the SAG Award for the 355. Okay, which is a film. Uh, now you know tell what? me why you enjoyed that movie. You know what? It's my it's my new salt. <laughs> is it the that good? The 355 is iconic. It's, it's bad, but it's so much fucking fun. Also, the cast. It's like Jessica Chastain, uh, Sebastian Stan, Lupita Nyong'o. I love when she, um, I love when Hollywood actually like lets her be in a film. I know it's been she's been in like five movies since Twelve Years a Slave, and not including that one where she played like a worm in Star Wars or whatever. Right, she is like one of the most well-known black actresses in the fucking globe. Uh, she's always on a fucking magazine cover, but she's never in a fucking movie. Yes. Yes, I'm very up to date on, say, her Instagram, but <laughs> her filmography uh, needs more steps. Yeah, um, she's in it. Um, Bing Bing Fan is in it. Remember oh. when she vanished for years? That was a very scary situation, <laughs> yes. Um, Penelope Cruz is in it. Penelope Cruz, who I want to win the Oscar, by the way, because she's iconic and deserves nope. it after that iconic W Magazine spread shot by Pedro Almodovar. She is awesome in parallel mothers it's weird like the lasting impact of that movie because as you're watching it there's a lot of difficult scenes and a lot of like in a traditional mode of our way like huge emotional turns like she finds out this piece of information and then this piece and some people would just term that melodrama but really it's she makes it seem pretty real and i think that's all on her so i think it's less of a melodrama than it would be given that Penelope Cruz is the star of it. She's also just a fucking awesome actress, looks awesome on screen. I, think I wouldn't mind if she role. won either. I think, it's her, I think it's her best performance, actually. And, like, um, you know, like, jokes about muses aside, you know, uh, I was Pedro Almodovar's muse when I did Palamadal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have we even uh, talked about that, the Julia Fox <laughs> clip of her talking about whatever the fuck that is? We haven't. Uh, I feel like it was dead by the time we got to it. That's true. Also, this thing happens when you try to talk about Julia Fox when you realize there's nothing to say. You're like, can you believe she did? I, I don't care. Like, there's nothing there. Oh, you, you have a weird voice? There's not. There's no There's no interest. She's, she's a less interesting Fox than Star Fox and the fantastic Mr. Fox. Wow, Star Fox. We're talking about SNES now. Okay, she's, she's less interesting than Foxy Cleopatra. So... Uh. <laughs> That's a lesser Beyonce role, yes. Um... But no, I take Cadillac it's, Records over that. I think it's I think it's Penelope's like best performance, you know. And I think I love that. Um, I saw the um, baby switch story coming, uh, mostly just because um, Pedro still you know borrows his stories from Soats and telenovela, and then makes right. them more uh, and like humanizes them a bit more. 
Um, certainly more in his later years, the melodrama is less intense than, you know, in his um, All About My Mother era. Right. Um, another perfect film. Um, but I would love for her to win for that. And I just want to say that Jessica Chastain winning uh, the SAG Award does not mean she is about to win the Oscar. Okay, there are like two different voting bodies who do Oscars versus SAG. SAG is literally everyone who's ever been an actor. Right. Okay, so it's just someone sitting like, up there. Like, I'm in SAG because of like three times I appeared on Jimmy Kimmel. So just right. know that. And, you know, some some woman named Leslie in Van Nuys is just watching Tammy Faye and like, oh, she looks so great. I wish I'd done that role. She's so iconic. And then they vote for her. Right. Sure. Also, I think people are a little bit in denial about how many people vote for the Oscars. It's like also like thousands and thousands of people and not the same. I mean, obviously, there's an overlapping voting block, but it's not the same block. So um, one win does not necessarily equate another win. But you know what? I think people need to stick up for Nicole Kidman. I do think she is excellent and real seeming enough in the Lucy movie because she would be that kind of stolid, business-driven person in that environment, given how popular it was. Like she, she, I feel like she would be kind of wisecracking in that way, and she really sells it. It's so much strange dialogue for someone who is allegedly Lucille Ball to say, but she really meshes it well. She makes it seem realistic. Here's what I'll say. I love Nicole in this film, and I actually love this film. I enjoyed uh, it a lot. I think it's an a, I think it's like an A minus. Uh, but I would say that we don't have enough films that follow Aaron Sorkin's mantra of, you know, like anyone who's just like a good actor could play this role. Like it's not about representing the person um to a T. You know, I think we just talked about this on the show before. You know, it's like everyone's used to for a biopic. Like you got to they got to look exactly like this person, which is why they uh-huh. pick like fucking Deborah Messing. Um, right. The Internet yeah. has. And I think that yeah, tell me tell me you're not into actresses without telling me you're not into actresses. Oh, you saw Deborah Messing in a Lucille Ball costume one time. So now she has to play her in a biopic. Get off my fucking lawn. <laughs> um, I would posit that. Nicole Kidman playing this role on stage wouldn't would, no one would bat an eye. Totally, totally. Yeah, because she's she's playing it in certain broad strokes. And also, again, I invite you to look back at old clips of Lucille Ball, and you realize, oh, she's not daffy at all. She's not, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't have a sort of a whimsical spirit about her the way Lucy Ricardo does. So. Uh, Anyway, Nicole, fabulous as always. Did anything else happen at the SAG Awards that we're interested in? Well, um, Oscar Isaac kissed Jeremy Strong on the cheek. Uh, okay, great. And we got to see Oscar Isaac and Jeremy Strong and Jessica Chastain hanging out. And they're all besties. Because if you recall, just, uh, Jessica Chastain um, went to the defense of Jeremy Strong after that profile. And now I want to see Jeremy Strong in the 355 sequel. Uh, wow. Okay. Again, you've broken my brain. My brain is now in shards. But I don't know what I want more: the three, five, six, or salt two. <laughs> three, five, six. <laughs> um, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain—they were in *A Most Violent Year* together, and they were also in *Scenes from My Marriage* together, which are two things maybe I will watch someday. Mm, well, I think we, as you dressed last week or so, that *A Most Violent Year* is just about the coats, uh, right. and. Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac's best performances are just on red carpets. So, right, I think I, I think we're, I think I think we're good there. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe the best moment of the SAG Awards didn't even happen at the award show. It was um, Laverne Cox uh, asking Lady Gaga about her dress. And she was like, what's the story here tonight? And like Lady Gaga, clearly seeming high, was like, the story I'm telling tonight is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. But Patricia Gucci had originally inhabited her body. Now it's Gloria Allred. <laughs> I'm going to miss that bitch on the award circuit. I'm you sad know, that she's not nominated for an Oscar only because we won't get Oscar antics from her. Because, like, Gaga not being, not being nominated for an Oscar, it's like, why would she even bother to show up? Right, right. Um, I, I had been sick of Gaga's reign of terror during this award season giving shall we say, under funny people on Twitter, a, a whole personality. That said, <laughs> that's not on her, that's on them. So, yeah. Uh, and maybe just the final thing to talk about with the SAGs is, you know, like the, also the actor race, which is, I think, one of the more interesting best actor races we've had in years. Oh, because you got Will Smith, who won at the SAGs, Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch, Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Andrew Garfield. Uh, whom, who, I, again, it's like you put all these three of these names up and it really is. I, I want to write a five paragraph essay in my senior year of high school to 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 solve which of these I want to vote for. But I think I Denzel would go with Andrew Garfield. Too. Denzel. I thought I thought Macbeth was great. I thought Francis was great, too. Yeah, I'm sad Francis didn't get a nomination Oscar nomination. But, you know, this making Denzel the most awarded, uh, most nominated black actor for this performance. You know, it's like. Do you want to see Andrew get this Oscar finally? I feel like no, um, because he still has to pay penance for Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> it is weird that his two nominated rules, the directors are Mel Gibson and Lynn manuel Miranda. Like, what what range, if you will? Oh, I would love to see them at brunch together. Oh, God. Dumois spotting Lynn manuel Miranda and Mel Gibson at Pastis. <laughs> Um, <laughs> two, two competitive ponytails yeah from two different worlds honestly Lin-Manuel Miranda will probably write the greatest Mel Gibson musical ever oh god well, the biopic by, well, by the way you know what could be a musical Maverick oh T yeah. one of the great Mel Gibson movies <laughs> uh, I'm surprised Braveheart isn't one or maybe it already is and someone's going to tell me um, yeah it needs but, to not be that said Sophie Marceau if you're out there call us we love you I want um, I want Will to get that Oscar I like I I adore him it was a great speech um, and I think you know it's that's one of those nice um, moments you love at the Oscars where it's like a beloved actor who's been in a lot of like blockbuster and like feel good movies like can also turn out a um great dramatic performance and it's like you want to award them because uh, I feel like he's earned it um for previous performances you know and I think that you know it'd be taught it, it it's fun to hand in one the same way that you know like Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock got their Oscars I feel like Julia Roberts is a pretty good parallel because it's not the way you're phrasing it, it's almost like, oh, well, he's overdue and this performance is good enough. But no, it's a really, really good performance. It's really makes... good. And everyone voting, I feel like, loves him. Totally. I mean, it, it's it's so much more ideal than, say, when Paul Newman won for The Color of Money, which if you've seen that movie is you wouldn't put that in his top 25 performances. 
you know, or like the scent of a woman, another thing where it's like, oh, we had to give it to Al Pacino for that. I would put it on par with something like maybe Leo in The Revenant, where, yeah. you know, it's it's a memorable performance. Maybe not my favorite in terms of what he can do emotionally, but it is great. And it and you can argue that it's the best. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's all we have to say about the SAG Awards. Uh, oh, but shout out, shout out to Coda and Marley Matlin. I still, oh, I still need God. to see. I still need to see Coda, but I love seeing Marley Matlin on stage. Um, anywhere, she is full of life. Yes, I know. Also, well, uh, by the way, one of I've my favorite seen... Celebrity Apprentice contestants. Oh, oh my God, she got to the finals too. No, by the way, I have seen the film Coda. I must have missed the part where they explain that Coda means child of deaf adults. I, I like totally missed that. That's like the name of the movie, baby. I know, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. By the way, I want to say about that movie, um, shout out to Amelia Jones, the star of that movie, who really makes the conflict at the center of the story where she has to choose between basically, you know, serving as, you know, a helper to her family for the rest of her life and like choosing her own destiny seem very real. And also, weirdly, after the SAGs, I just had this idea I, I hadn't seen in ages, the movie Running on Empty, if you know what that is, written by Naomi Fomer Gyllenhaal, mother of the Gyllenhaals. And it was R River Phoenix's one Oscar-nominated performance. It is weirdly a lot like Coda, a kid who's a, a musical prodigy, has to choose between sticking with his family, who in this case are fugitives because they uh, blew up a napalm lab as college students once upon a time, and mm. going to Juilliard. That was a Juilliard. plot point on Desperate Housewives season five, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, I have to tell you, this is probably better than that. Um, Drea but... Mateo as a eco-terrorist? I doubt it. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> But uh, I think we need to have a River Phoenix conversation soon, uh, soon just about how he was really able to do a ton of emotions. He, 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 what people think James Dean is, he actually was. He could do complex emotions and register them intensely, whereas James Dean was pretty much just angry. Yeah, we should get River on the podcast. Okay. Well, I didn't say that. There is a new River <laughs> Phoenix in life, though. The son of Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara is named River Phoenix. Oh, that's right. Okay. Kate Mara's nephew, if you will. Well, I think we've tapped out on the SAG Awards. I did my best. I did my best, too. I voted for you, Jennifer Coolidge. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you didn't win. Oh, come on. Kate Winslet and Mayor of Easttown blew that shit up. That's one of the best miniseries performances I've ever seen. All right. Well, we're back. Keep it. And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis, who are you keeping it to? I was trying to have a peaceful Tuesday. I get up <laughs> out of my bed. You know how I live my life. I get the coffee. I come back. Maybe turn mm -hmm. some game shows on. Sam Elliott piped up today. Sam Elliott, Oscar nominee for A Star is Born. Husband of The Graduates, Catherine Ross. I hope they have a lovely marriage. I really do. <laughs> Whenever I hear Sam Elliott, for 10 seconds, I always think people are talking about Sam Neill. Oh, well, it's, I, under, I totally understand. They're just that sort of... You see them about the same amount, too. And they pop up with regularity in any kind of project. Anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Sam Elliott popped off about the movie The Power of the Dog today, which is already not doing that well thanks to its low SAG appreciation. So I'm mm-hmm. in Jane Campion's corner at the moment. But anyway, he was on Mark Maron's podcast, Sam Elliott, and the movie comes up and he goes, and Mark Maron goes, oh, you didn't like that one? He goes, fuck no. Why? I'll tell you why I didn't like it anyway. First of all, <laughs> slow down. Slow down. He goes, I looked at when I was down there in Texas doing 1883, a movie I guess he did, and what really brought home to me the other day when I said, there's a fucking full-page ad out in the LA Times, and there was a review, not a review, but a clip, and it talked about the evisceration of the American myth, and I thought, what the fuck, what the fuck? This is the guy that's done Westerns forever. The evisceration of the American West, they made it look like, what are all those dancers that those guys in New York who wear bow ties and not much else, remember them from back in the day? So I didn't know what that meant, but moving on. That's what all... (laughs) He goes, that's what all these fucking cowboys in that movie look like. They're all running around in chaps and no shirts. There's all these allusions to homosexuality throughout the fucking movie. Okay, are you in denial that there could have been some gay people in the American West? I want to be clear, it's the entire American West. Okay, just, (laughs) I I feel like there are some around. And then Mark Barron responded, well, I think that's what the movie's about. Obviously, in the movie... Uh, it's implied that Benedict Cumberbatch's rancher character, Phil Burbank, is a repressed gay man. And then Sam Elliott added, what the fuck does this woman, referring to Jane Campion, the director, she's a brilliant director, by the way. I love her work, previous work. Oh, I'm so sure you were sitting there watching Portrait of a Lady, motherfucker. Anyway, he goes, <laughs> he loves, <laughs> he loves watching Anna Paquin tickle those ivories. Oh, right. Right up, right up Sam Elliott's alley. He goes, what the fuck does this woman from down there, New Zealand, know about the American West? And why in the fuck does she shoot this movie in New Zealand and call it Montana and say this is the way it was? That fucking rubbed me the wrong way, pal. I don't know if Sam Elliott... I, I feel that Sam Elliott should know that often movies are not filmed where they take place. That's just how movies are He's sometimes. been in 700. That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, like the movie Jackie... Like they didn't use the real White House. They, they used a set. Like that's how a movie <laughs> often occurs. <laughs> Second of all, that is so offensive to imply that Jane Campion couldn't have, one, a take on the American West, let alone an understanding of the American West. Books exist. Wikipedia exists. Documentaries exist. These are all things Jane Campion is probably extremely familiar with. And to say that there's a, a take about the West that you couldn't possibly have because the information isn't available, it's like, first of all, almost every Western since, like, the 50s is, quote, unquote, an upheaval of the Western or a a play on the Western or Mm -hmm. uh, evisceration of a myth, whatever. So for him to come down on her feels targeted in a sexist way. It just feels like somebody coming after a woman being like, this is a man's business. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't ask what does Martin Scorsese know about street gangs to direct, to direct, to direct the bad video. (laughs) 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 Gangs of New York, the other bad video. Yes. (laughs) Other detour, I rewatched the bad video recently, and you know what I love um, that I noticed for the first time? You know in music videos, there's always like a wind machine, and like people are dancing, and like it just sort of comes out of nowhere. I love that Scorsese directing this video. It's like, if we're going to have a wind machine sequence, we need to show Michael Jackson pulling the grater um, oh off, yeah, like uh, the in, AC, in a subway, in yeah. the subway, so that there's actually a reason why wind is blowing. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, uh, 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 really setting the actor up for success <laughs> by putting all the 
things in place there. He is a cranky old man. Uh, but And it's disappointing because I feel like we had so much Sam Elliott um, goodwill post A Star totally. is Born. Yeah, and by the way, what does Bradley Cooper know about a star being born? I mean, these are questions you could ask about <laughs> any movie. No, I like Sam Elliott, and, you know, he looks like, you know, an old toothbrush, and we love that about him. But <laughs> I, I have no idea where he's coming from here, and he completely disappointed me. You know what? One of the wildest films that I saw Sam Elliott in before was Fatal mm. Beauty, 1987 Whoopi Goldberg film. It's, it's basically like her... Um, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, you know, sure. Because Whoopi Goldberg did versions of every other movie. That was yes. her career for a while. Like <laughs> bad versions of movies that previously exist. Uh, she like goes undercover. She's an undercover narcotics officer uh, who has a basically like a romance with Sam Elliott in this film. It is bizarre. Oh, wow. and well, he's kind of Ted Danson shaped. It. He's yes. kind of Ted Danson shaped. So it does work out if he you know Whoopi Goldberg's dating history. <laughs> he was romancing her, romancing Cher. How would Cher, Whoopi, and Lady Gaga feel about um, him attacking Jane Campion? Yeah, I don't like it. By the way, now you got me thinking about Whoopi Goldberg's late 80s era. Woof. What a flop time for her. I mean, she was in all these, like... She was, she was solving like, crimes with dinosaurs. Right? That <laughs> shit. Burglar. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Anyway, Whoopi, you prevailed. The only, the, the only iconic one is Jumpin' Jack Flash. She's very much at a computer in that one, and I enjoy those scenes where she. It's like one of those movies where you have to type in a password five times, and then she looks and sees the password on on a countertop and types it in. You know, one of the ten VHSs that was constantly on the TV stand in my grandmother's home. It was like that, and like Jagged Edge with Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, like mm. just iconic films. Oh, I, I thought Jagged Edge is great. That's one of. Glenn Close's best 80s movies, and she wasn't even nominated for it. But anyway. Also, other detours, speaking of Glenn Close, um, the cinematographer that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was talking about also did Dangerous Liaisons. Oh, which is why we do this. Yeah. Oh, come on. White people uh, being bastards. <laughs> and truly white. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I want to discuss that genre with you next week. Let's take a note. White people being <laughs> bastards. We're doing that as we're doing that as a segment. <laughs> a, a complete annotated history of white people being bastards. Yes, <laughs> we'll see that next week from us on Keep It. Uh, so my Keep It this week goes to Gary Janetti. Uh, now people might know who that is, so you got to explain. Mm, yes, Gary Janetti is a comedy writer, uh, showrunner. Um, you know, he's worked on um, Will and Grace, you know, and like um, many classics. Uh, and he's married to Brad Goreski, uh, which, you know, I do have sympathy for him for that. <laughs> I, Brad Goreski on that show, the, the Rachel Zoe Project... I thought it would have a more lasting cultural imprint because I really did love it at the time. And Rachel Zoe looks like, drumroll please, Sandy Dennis from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Anyway. <laughs> uh, mostly I just have sympathy for him with probably being the person who has to hold the camera while Brad Goreski is doing his Real Housewives impersonations. It's like, baby. Mm. Did he turn to front-facing comedy? I didn't know that. He sh Brad Goreski sure did. But just for oh. Bravo. Oh, okay, Everyone's okay. trying to make money off Bravo these days. I'm like, baby, leave it to Casey Wilson and Danielle Schneider. 
Yeah, definitely. People turn to front-facing comedy the way they used to turn to hard drugs. So <laughs> the pandemic did a lot of damage. Uh, but anyway, I'm not. I'm not even specifically mad at Gary Janetti. Actually, I'm mad at this form of comment, which was on his Instagram. Maybe not the best weekend to post a photo of yourself at the beach. Obviously, referring oh to the God. fact that there is war in Ukraine. Um, you know. I hate this general, like, rhetoric because it implies that, I don't know, what are we supposed to do? Like, take up arms and go to Ukraine? It's like your entire Instagram should just be infographics about the war. And like, let me tell you something about infographics on social media. Most of them are bullshit. Most of them right. are easily digestible, um, like, pithy or witty little comments for you to share and act like you're actually doing activism. Uh, and then, you know, like if you're a person who is just, oh, you know what? I'm going to spend the weekend sharing information about Ukraine and my Instagram story. Part of me actually feels like that's the extent of you thinking about the conflict. Also, it's just complete pretension to jump on somebody else's Instagram and criticize them for not posting something that they might, by the way, have no familiarity with or they whatever. It's like I, I think people are in denial about the fact that Social media is basically like a school cafeteria that <laughs> you're having conversations with your friends and we sometimes overhear other conversations and run into tables we wouldn't normally sit at. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be covering crucial news. I mean, it's just so strange. What a strange comment to leave. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's stuff like that where it's like people being like, I can't believe Fashion Week is still going on. And it's like, yes, I can't believe that um, an industry which employs a lot of people and not just, you know, um, the mega rich um, celebrities you see, like, sitting front row. Like, there's designers and, like, and makeup artists, you know, and stylists and people who are need this week, you know, to, like, pay their fucking bills. You know, it's just like... Just because something is happening uh, in Ukraine, which is horrible, um, doesn't mean that like everyone else in the world needs to halt what they're doing. Specifically, said white people never seem to want to halt what they're doing when it's um, non-white countries going through turmoil, which happens every that's, day. So, that's an interesting point. Yes. Let's let's pick and let's pick and choose which conflicts we're gonna like police when other people need to be quiet about. You know, it's like. It, it's it's the same thing as like during like June 2020, you know, when um, some people were like, don't you post your selfie during like the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter protests. And for me, I was like, baby, if you don't have a thought in that brain, go ahead and post that selfie because <laughs> I do not want to hear your thoughts on intersectionality. Right. <laughs> don't I, share, I mean, don't share a Sean King post on Instagram. OK, post the <laughs> selfie. Right. Thoughts are what's going to disappoint me more than a photograph, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I remember I remember the day Michael Jackson died. So that's what, June 2009. I posted something about that. Mm. And I was working at knew... Magnolia Bakery. And that is oh, where really? I found out Michael Jackson died. Oh, wow. Well, I could have used a cupcake so, in that moment. We should have been united. told me. Wow. Wow. But I remember somebody I knew from college posted on my uh, Facebook like, why I care about this when I don't know what other world conflict was happening. It's like, this one did not educate me about whatever conflict you're talking about. And two, 
there are there are layers to concern. Like you you can post about this one thing and still be concerned about something else, even though you're not posting about it. Anyway, these are all things that are probably fundamental to our listeners, but should be reiterated. Yes, just a reiteration that everything I post on social media isn't everything that's going through my brain. Or the world, yes. <laughs> right. Um, so let people hawk their, you know, their their juices or whatever products, okay, baby? Post that right. beat selfie. Okay? <laughs> Just because there's war doesn't mean I don't want to see a hot body on the beach. Okay? Right. Oh, my God. People Put are that so on your horny tombstone. in wartime. Okay? <laughs> horny in wartime. My favorite Salman Rushdie novel. Yes. Uh, it's every Ernest Hemingway book. Oh, yeah. That's true. Well, <laughs> the, the bullfighting metaphors. Look them up. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's our episode. Thank you to Joey Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> for joining <laughs> us. Joey Gordon Levitt, yes. Yeah. Um, and we will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.